Well, it's my uh, great privilege to, to uh, speak this morning from a passage of scripture that, that is so very interesting and applicable to our lives, but also uh, not just because of the text that we're going to look at this morning, but where it's going to take us as we think further about the issue that it, that it raises up in front of our eyes. Uh, you'll remember that last week we began looking at this passage and we uh, recognized that it talks about uh, sin, a three-letter word that uh, isn't a very popular word. But it, it talks about sin, and we began by thinking about what sin means to us. But the picture isn't complete until we think about what does sin mean to God. So as I, as I speak this morning, we'll go on a trail through the Bible, and that trail will lead us down some dark paths. But hang, hang with me, because in the end it comes out in the light. Uh, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, if you haven't already. 1 Timothy 5, it's on page 1412 in our Bibles. Um, I'm going to begin reading at verse 22. It says, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. We remember that, that Paul is writing this, the Apostle Paul is writing this to Timothy, who's the pastor at Ephesus. If you're here with us every week, you've heard this several times. And... Um, there were problems in Ephesus. Um, some of the leaders in the church had to be put out of the church because they were teaching false doctrine and wouldn't, wouldn't change from that. And Timothy had the difficult job of leading that whole episode where he had to put some people out and, and then try to raise up others to take their place. <clears throat> Verse 22, he's being warned that not to uh, put anyone into leadership too quickly because then he'll he'll wind up sharing in their mistakes and their sin and paul says there at the end of verse 22 keep yourself free from sin sin is so um so destructive so insidious so sly he's saying keep yourself from it and that's that's his his emphasis there and then he goes on then in 23, 24, and 25. Now, the first question I want to look at uh, this morning is, what do we make of verse 23? What in the world is verse 23 talking about? It's interesting because um, uh, it, it, it almost appears like it doesn't belong there, or it certainly appears that if you took verse 23 out, and just went from 22 to 24 to 25. It would make perfect sense. There's, there's, it's just perfect. It's all talking about the issue of sin in one way or another. And 23 would not be missed if it wasn't there. No one would say, gee, I think there's something missing. Rather, you look at verse 23 and think, what, is, what does that mean? You look at verse 23, it says, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So Paul is telling Timothy to, to drink a little bit of wine because he has stomach problems and some health 
problems. Now, the question then is, um, well, why, why is Paul telling them to do that? And because people begin, and I can be guilty of this, they begin overthinking it and trying to look at the, you know, the real meaning in verse 23. And I think the safest way to take verse 23 is actually just to take it exactly the way it's said. That Paul, he's, why did he tell him to drink some wine? He told him to drink it for his health. For his, he's having stomach problems. And apparently Timothy had sworn off all, all wine or anything like that. Perhaps in, as an example because of the problem in the culture at that time. But, but Paul's saying, um, drink a little bit of wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Um, we know from different places in, in the Bible that, that uh, Paul was, uh, excuse me, Timothy was susceptible to uh, stress and to fear. He was, in a, one sense, he was a timid guy. He was very gifted and put in a position of uh, great importance, but he was timid. He was uh, fearful. We see that from Second uh, Timothy, that he was a little bit fearful. And uh, it's quite possible that, that uh, you put together the stress of the things he had to do with his weak constitution, and he's got stomach problems. Oh, man, this sounds uh, kind of familiar. So, um, and so Paul's telling him, you know, take some wine, it'll help your stomach. Um, that's the face value. That's face value. But a secondary issue might be, and this is what people try to think about, is that this is coming right after verse 22 where he said, keep yourself free from sin. So Paul's writing this to Timothy. You got to keep yourself free from sin. And then he thinks, oh, you know, Timothy might take this the wrong way. And he says, and besides, right about now, and as I'm talking about, I'm, I'm paraphrasing Paul, as I'm talking about all this tense stuff about putting elders out of the church and re- replacing them, he, he says, you know, Timothy's going to have an ulcer right about now. Yeah, as he reads this, Timothy's going to be nodding up inside. I know Timothy. So he says, hey, Timothy, don't forget to take care of yourself. And I think that's the main point, is that as you're dealing with people's souls, make sure you take care of your own body. That's what, that's what this is actually saying. There might, however, be this little application in the end, though, is that, that um, denying yourself for the sake of denying yourself is not really what it means to keep yourself free from sin. If, if Timothy is going to swear off all drink, all of that wine, for the thought that by doing so, now I'm more spiritual, Paul's, this actually corrects that idea. Asceticism or denying yourself for the sake of denying yourself. We often deny ourselves, but for reasons. Amen? You know, there's a reason out there that I deny myself something. But to deny myself, just to deny myself, that is not the essence of spirituality. That is not the essence of Christianity. That's not what it means to keep yourself free from sin. So that lesson comes rolling out from Paul to Timothy in verse 23. But the main point, as I said, is Paul is saying, pay attention to your body 
while you're paying attention to other people's souls. Because we're all united. We're spiritual and physical together. It's the way God's made us. And often the strain of dealing with other people's sin can take a toll on your own body. So pay attention to that as you go through life. Now, then he gets to verse 24 and 25. And I want to read that to you. He says, The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Interesting. He's saying that some men, and that word man there is is generic. So men and women, some people there... um, their they their sins are right out there and everybody sees it and when you when you think of so and so you think of something bad and that sin is like preceding them on their way to judgment there is a judgment day god is going to hold us all accountable for the way we live and some people their bad stuff just kind of goes right on ahead of them and then they get they catch up to it But others, in verse 24, it says, for others, their sins follow after. There is no one that is sinless. And some of us don't look so bad compared to the others, but our sins are still there, and and we'll get there to the last day, and our sins will be there too. That's what Paul's saying. Then he says, likewise, in verse 25, likewise also. So now he's making a comparison. Verse 24 is about the bad stuff. Verse 25 is about the good stuff. He says, likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident. There are some people who you think of so-and-so and you think of all this good stuff. It, they're quite evident. And then those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Now, this means those which are otherwise, meaning those which are not quite evident. In other words, he's still talking in verse 25 about good deeds. Some of the good deeds are quite evident and some aren't so evident. But he says in either case, when you get to the end, it's all revealed. There's nothing concealed to God. Amen? It's all right up front for God. I think about the verse in Psalms that says darkness and and light are alike to you, O God. God has no trouble seeing in the dark. Everything is, there isn't anything dark to him. He sees it. And so in the end, there's a judgment by God. God sees all in our lives. He notes it and he will judge it in the end. And, no, and from our perspective, some things are more obvious than others, good and bad. Some things are more hidden than others, good and bad. But God sees it all. God notes it and God will deal with it. In the end. Now, this, of course, brings up this issue of sin. And I want to continue on from last week and thinking about now, what does my sin mean to God? He's noting it. He's going to have a ju- He has a judgment day set. What, what does my sin then mean to him? And it's easy uh, in talking about sin, to just go into the beginning. So turn to Genesis chapter 3. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. It's on page 4. <laughs> page 4 of the Bible there. Adam and Eve were created. 
They had the world. They were in fellowship and a right relationship with God. They were free with each other and free with God. There was no, um, there was nothing wrong in their relationship with each other. There was nothing wrong in their, with their relationship with God. They'd be given a task to populate and run the earth. They were, they were given there. Now, here's this big earth. Let, you know, go at it. Discover, learn, run, manage. Be my stewards over the whole earth. But they rebelled, and we know that story early in chapter 3. So now they've rebelled against God, and God is holding them to account for that. He's, he's revealing to them that he knows what's going on. And it gets then to verse 22. So let me read 22 and on. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Us meaning there's a trinity, triune God. The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim. And the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. This passage raises a lot of questions, and we don't have time to go into all of them. But what I want you to see here is something something special. One thing that's obvious and one that's not so obvious. But what does sin do uh, to us in terms of... um, How then does God relate to us because of sin? And we see here that God removes his presence from us because of sin. There in the Garden of Eden, we're living with him. Now we've rebelled and God removes us from him. So we've lost the presence of God, the special presence of God in our lives because of sin. It reminds me of Psalm 5.4 which says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. God, in his holiness, cannot have a special relationship with one which, who is evil, who has sin. He's too pure for that. And so now we've lost the presence of God. And God is the one who does it. He removes Adam and Eve from from the um, from the garden, and notice in verse twenty four, there's mentioned the cherubim. See, it says in twenty four, he drives the man out. He drives Adam and Eve out. Imagine the anguish that they experienced, where they had it all. Now they've lost it all. They're driven out. He's now going to eke out an existence with the sweat of his brow. She's going to bear children, but now with pain. And then when, when they've lived some years of trial and with trouble, they're going to die and they're going to go back into the earth from which they came. Not the original plan. Not in one sense what they were created for. 
Matter of fact, now, just a little hint about why this, what verse 22 means is that now knowing evil, knowing it in an experiential way, knowing evil, they, they must not live forever like that. You see, he's, God drives them out of the garden. They have to die. But hallelujah, I'm getting ahead of myself. There is a resurrection. Amen. There is a resurrection. But we've lost the presence of God because of sin. But, God, and then, but there's something special here because in verse 24, God puts cherubim there to guard, to guard that place. Cherubim. What are cherubim? You know, we have little, we have paintings. Cherubim is plural. So cherub would be singular. And we think of cherub as naked little babies that are painted, you know, in little pictures and greeting cards or on, on walls of churches in Europe. Very, very bad mistake. <clears throat> Cherubs are special heavenly beings differentiated from the angels, which, as you look in Scripture, they are especially um, connected with the presence of God. In Ezekiel chapter 10, we won't, we won't turn there, but if you want to look this up later, there's the vision that Ezekiel has of the glory of the presence of God. And the, and the, and the presence of God in all of His glory, the, the Shekinah cloud, is, is represented also with this. And right there are the cherubim. The cherubim are associated with that. They're, they're special beings where God is in all of the manifestation of his glory. In Isaiah and in Revelation, we see also visions of the glory of God and the Shekinah cloud and heavenly creatures that may indeed be the cherubim. And you see, see, there's, there's the cherubim represent and, and are associated in the scripture with the presence of God. So what's happening in, in, in Genesis 3 is God is driving them away. They have sinned and they're driven away from his presence. And the cherubim are left there and Adam and Eve are going that direction. Sin has barred us from God. But this is not what we were created for. This is not what we were made for. And God hasn't given up on his creation. And there's a very, very interesting reference also to cherubim. And I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. It's on page 97. Exodus 25. You see, when you look in the scripture about cherubim, they kind of fall into two categories. All the references in the Bible to cherubim fall into two categories. On the one hand, there are what I've talked about in Ezekiel and, and um, Isaiah and Revelation where, and here in Genesis 3 where it's talking about the actual heavenly beings and all of their awesomeness. Yes, I should say that, <laughs> you know, Ezekiel, when he saw the cherubim, he fell on his face like he was dead. He had to be revived. It wasn't a little naked baby. It was, it was, as we, it was in the true sense of the word, awesome. So 
That's one group of verses in the Bible the, the, uh, that refer to cherubim. The other, it's all about the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament and, the, and how it was built and what was there. And that's in Exodus 25. They start off in verse 10. So these are the instructions, the God-given instructions for building the Ark, which was a big box a very fancy box that was going to be put in the tabernacle. And then later, of course, it was put in the temple. It says they'll construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. A cubit's about 18 inches and one and a half cubits high. You'll overlay it with pure gold inside and out. And he goes on and he gives all these instructions. Then he gets to verse 17. You shall make, and I don't know how your Bible translate it, but it's, you shall make a mercy seat. A propitiatory is another word. This is the word propitiation put into like a a, a different form. It's a mercy seat. It's not a seat that someone sits on. It's a location of mercy. Amen. It's a mercy seat of pure gold. This is to be on the top of this ark. Two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. And you shall make... Two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the very ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And facing one another, the faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony, which I will give to you. And there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony. I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. This is beautiful. So here in this representation of, of heavenly things, God has them build this ark, and on the top of the ark is the mercy seat, and on either end, with their wings outstretched and their faces looking t- inward, are, the che- are images of the cherubim who are associated with the very presence of God. And there, you remember, you remember later, when the Shekinah glory then appeared, where, where was it? It was right there. Amen? This, the glory of God, the presence of God, the cherubim right there. But the beautiful thing about this, my friend, is you remember what was to happen on the mercy seat? See, no one could even go in. Once, once this was all completed and they brought everything in and the priest, they, they put... They put the uh, Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on it in there and they left. The glory of God came down and nobody could go in there. You'd, you'd die if you went in there. Except once a year on the Day of Atonement. Amen? Leviticus 16, if you're taking notes. We won't turn there. But once a year, they took the, the sacrifice outside the tabernacle was made. And the blood of that animal that was representing the one who was suffering for the sins of the people. They took the blood and the high priest only once a year. And tradition tells us, it's not, tradition tells us that they tied a rope around the priest's ankle. And that was so that if he died while he was in there, they could pull him out. 
without going in there themselves because they wouldn't go in there themselves. Once a year with the blood, he came. In trepidation, I am sure. And he came up to what no one's eyes would see but him. And there are the cherubim stretched over the mercy seat. And there he put the blood on the mercy seat. The sacrifice made on behalf of others is placed in the presence of God. For atonement to be made for the sins of people. Now, with that in mind, turn to Matthew chapter 27. And we're still thinking, remember, what does sin mean to God? And I want us to look. Matthew 27 is on page 11A2. Bring us now. To a place not far from where the temple was built that had also this Ark of the Covenant there. But here outside the town is a place called Golgotha or Calvary. And on Calvary is the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has come being God and man now. He is both. And he lives a perfect life. He performs miracles. He shows who he is. But sinful men put him on the cross to kill him. And he's hanging there on the cross. And pick this story up in verse 45. So it's Matthew 27, 45. It says, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land. Sixth hour is is roughly noon. That's noon. So an unnatural, a miraculous, an unexplainable darkness falls on the earth. It says it fell upon all the land until about 3 o'clock, ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, after three hours of this, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil in the temple, and that's the veil that separated where the mercy seat was from everything else. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And now skip to 54. Now now the centurion and those who were with them, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Verse 46 is one of the most holy verses in the Bible, if you can say that, compare one to the other. 
There's Jesus. He said a few things already, but now they're in this darkness, this supernatural darkness. He's crying out to his father who he, being the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he's the one, you remember, it says in Genesis, where he uses the word us. Well, you know, they, they now are like us in the sense that they know evil and good. Who is that us? It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the eternal one who from eternity, before there was ever any cre- created thing, God existed in a fellowship of persons. One God, but three persons. Eternal joy, eternal love between father and son. But now the son cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did that cry mean? What does that question mean? Why has the father forsaken the son? Quickly, a few things it does not mean. It does not mean that the Trinity was divided. Let's never, let's never allow that thought to come into our minds. Sometimes when we speak about the different persons of the Trinity, because of the limitations of our own language and how we talk about, it, about him, it, it sounds as if we're pitting three different uh, beings against each other, and that's not the way it is. It's... One God in three persons, difficult to understand. Well, perhaps we won't understand it until, until we see him. But no, there was awesome fellowship between the Father and the Son. But somehow that was temporarily sequestered. So that in that moment, in that darkness, as he was hanging on the tree, as he was being punished for, for the sinner's transgressions, He is forsaken of God. The God of his eternal love has forsaken him. He now is feeling that abandonment that Adam and Eve was feeling. As they're driven out of Eden, Jesus now hangs and the father has forsaken him. But it doesn't mean that he's been separated out of the Trinity. Another thing it does not mean is that Jesus had somehow lost sight of his mission. Other passages tell us clearly that Jesus knew what he was doing. And it wasn't an expression that he's forgotten somehow in his pain of why he was there. That that is not true. It was a it was a cry that came out of real suffering. And it was an acknowledgement that the Father has forsaken him. So what does it mean? Let me mention four things I think it means. Number one, Jesus suffered the agony of seemingly unanswered prayer. You remember Jesus, Jesus who walked in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus who, who got times in prayer, often early in the morning. This is the Jesus who, who stood at the tomb of Lazarus and said to God, I, I know that you always hear me, but for the sake of these people here, I'm asking out loud. Lazarus, come forth. He always was answered by the Father. Always. And even in Gethsemane, he knew the answer. He said, oh, Lord, 
You know, if it's your will, let this cup pass. But then he said, but not my will, but yours. Meaning, no, I I know your will and I submit to your will. But here on the cross, he suffers the pain of God's silence. The darkness has fallen on the earth. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God. And all there is is an echo of his voice in the darkness. There is no answer. Remember, at his baptism, there was a voice. This is my beloved son. The transfiguration, there's, a, there's, a, there's evidence of God speaking. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. But on the cross in the darkness, he cries out and there is no answer. No answer. This also means that Jesus suffered the agony of unspeakable pain. In 1 Peter 2, 24, it says, And he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And there, I've said this before, but I I say it again. He's, there were many people crucified by the Romans, but there was only one son of God crucified by the Romans. And so he was dying and taking upon himself in the spiritual realm. What was happening was our sins were being placed on him and the punishment of God was being carried out on him. The justice of God was being satisfied in his suffering. And so in his body, there was some sort of mix of the spiritual suffering and the physical so that he bore our sins in his body on the tree and the agony of it all, the agony of the suffering. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another truth that this means is that it's another way of saying this but that jesus suffered the agony of seemingly unmitigated here's a new word for you sinnership sinnership he he was being declared a sinner he wasn't a sinner but he's being treated now as a sinner He's now feeling himself not so much as this beloved son of the father, but as a sinner, for he's feeling the sin. You know, we hear the astronomers, you want to wonder at the glory of God. You just listen to what astronomers are discovering. Whether they even recognize God or not, they're writing hymn books for us to worship God from. They say that the density of a neutron star, a certain kind of star, if our sun, our sun, as huge as it is, had the density of a neutron star, it would um, fit, our entire sun would fit within the city limits of Allentown. That's how compressed it would be. Matter of fact, if it, all the people of the world, if, if we were packed in as dense as a neutron star, All of us would fit in a teaspoon. And in a sense, you see, what's happening with Jesus in a span of time, all of the sin of sinners is being compressed and put on him 
within time. And my friend, he suffered and he, he felt himself, as I said before, as a sinner and in his agony and his suffering there, he hangs. And lastly there, Jesus suffers the agony of seemingly unassisted loneliness. He is alone. His disciples have run from him. But more than that, the angels are not helping him. Many times through his life, you'll see the angels show up to assist him. They're not helping. The father holds them back and then turns his own face. The spirit of God, still the spirit of God with him, but withholds apparently his comfort. So his comfort is is not there. Jesus Our Savior suffers alone. And he cries out in all of this agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And do you know the answer to that question? The answer is you. That's why God forsook his son. It was for you. God forsook his son for you. You are the answer to his cry on the cross in the dark. Put your name. That's why he suffered. Because there was no other way for you to be reconciled to God. For you to have your record wiped clean. For you to be free again with God. For you to go back to the Garden of Eden. For you to be where the cherubim are. There is no other way except for the Son of God to suffer what you deserved. And that's why he, he did. He was forsaken so that you would not be forsaken of God he was abandoned so that you would know the eternal presence of God he was punished so that you would be set free and reach judgment day and have God the judge look at you and and the gavel come down and say not guilty hallelujah he suffered so that you will not eternally suffer sin is so serious And means so much to God that it takes the suffering of God's son to deal with it. That's what it means. And your efforts, my friends, in the the face of this, what are your efforts at making yourself right with God? What, What do they mean? What are your efforts to make yourself look good before God? You know, straighten my... But my coat, what in the world does anything you can do, what does that mean to God in terms of being holy or righteous or making things right? It means absolutely nothing. Amen? It's an insult to God for you to think that by your goodness, you can somehow help Make things right between you and God. My friends, that's insulting the Son of God who suffered for you. Our response to him is to trust him for what he did, not to trust ourselves 
for what we do. Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. We might ask, well, how do I come to him? By faith. You believe in him. And you might say then, but what is that? What is faith? How do I know if I actually have that? Faith is trust, my friend. It's trust that's built upon an understanding that God has given you. A new understanding that you have about your own sin, how serious your sin is, that it bars you from the presence of God, that it earns you punishment from God. But now you also understand something else. Not only do you understand how bad sin is, you understand what Jesus has done for you, that he took that punishment for you. He's dealt with it. You see Jesus now differently than you used to see him. Now you see that he's the answer to this problem I have with sin. It's not me. The answer's not in me. The answer's in Jesus. And you see that now. And so trust now comes in. Now you understand it, but you're still not forgiven. Now you must go to Christ. Remember, he says, come to me. Come to me. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. You go to him and you trust Jesus Christ with your heart. You trust him. And you say, Lord Jesus, I give up. I trust you completely. Save me. And he saves. Amen? He saves. Are you trusting Jesus Christ? And I'm speaking to every one of us in this room. Every one of us. Whether you're sure that you've trusted him or you're not, the message from this morning is exactly the same. It's so insidious, my Christian friend, brother or sister, we let slide into our thinking that somehow what we do is earning favor with God. All of us in this room, let's throw it all away. Wherever you are with God, throw it all away. And cast yourself on Jesus Christ and say, you're everything for me. Amen? You're everything. Let's pray. Lord, I think of that, those hours you hung on the cross and your cry, why have you forsaken me? And the wondrous truth that we're the answer to that question. It was to ransom us. We praise you. And we worship you. And we thank you. And right now, Lord, just together, we all just renounce any dependence on ourselves, on the church, on anything else to make us right with God. And we say to you, Lord Jesus, we trust in you. And we worship you and praise you. Work by your spirit and make these truths so real in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless.